Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Vladimir Lenin has gone down in history as the world's first communist leader, a man set on a violent revolution and the architect of the Red Terror, a wave of violent suppression responsible for the murder of thousands. But Lenin wasn't born a revolutionary. In fact, he was born to a rather well-to-do Russian family. So how did Lenin become so important? How did he rise to power? Well, I'm your host, James Rogers, and to help us find out, I'm happy to welcome the award-winning author and historian, Victor Sebastian, onto the podcast. Victor is the author of Lenin, The Man, The Dictator, and The Master of Terror. And it's from Victor's incredible research in the Russian archives that we hear about the many sides of Vladimir Lenin, and a little about how his legacy impacts Russia today. Hi, Victor. Welcome to Warfare. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks very much for asking me. Looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, well, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Today, we're focusing in on the life and death of Vladimir Lenin, the man who led the first communist revolution in history, overthrowing a czar and ending a dynasty. But take us back, if you will, to the 1800s and tell us about a young Lenin. He had a passion for for hunting, for fishing, for chess, and I believe the English classics. He was of noble birth, not an obvious person you might think to lead a proletarian workers' revolution. He got noble status through the civil service rank of his father, who was a schools inspector of a huge province in Russia. So education was a very strong part of him. He was an upper-class gentleman and brought out like that. Nothing in his background would have marked him out as one of the history's greatest rebels. He came from a very happy family, so you can't look back and say there was tortured family issues there. It was a very loving family, and there was no traumas in his life, and his father died when he was 16. The first trauma in his life, and the one that radicalised him and changed his life completely, was the execution of his brother, his elder brother by three years, who was at university, and did get involved in politics and was involved in a plot to assassinate the last Tsar but one, Alexander III. But it was a, almost an idyllic childhood um, in middle-class provincial town 600 miles southwest of Moscow on the Volga River. 
and his habits were he loved going for walks he loved nature he could he could identify hundreds of species of plants he loved going boating along the Rua Volga river these are none of the things that one would think of when one talks of lenin and i didn't really know much about it until i started researching my book and he could write apart from all the chunks later on which he wrote on marxist then subsequently leninist philosophy and economics he wrote beautifully on nature and on hunting the joys of hunting and shooting just like an upper class english gentleman Wow, these are not the things you expect when you're talking about Lenin. So he must have been incredibly close with his brother. He was. He was very, very close. And what radicalized him was not just that Lenin at this point wasn't involved. He read no politics. He read, as you said, a lot of English literature, a lot of classic literature, and the Greek and Roman classics, obviously, from his very rigorous education. What radicalized him was the execution of the brother but not only that it was the way that his family then were completely shunned this right. middle class family and that was as powerful effect on his politics later I mean I don't do psychobabble but it's very obvious from everything you read you know the the loathed bourgeois how he absolutely hated those middle class people of which he was one who then shunned the family and those particularly when his mother who he was extremely close to all throughout his life i mean lots of ruthless and cynical men are sentimental about their mothers but um, he was a classic example the eldest son was about to be executed and when his mother went to try and see him she had to go nearly a thousand kilometers more to near st petersburg where the execution was going to happen and lenin that young vladimir ulyanov his name was not lenin his name was vladimir ulyanov lenin was a a pen name tried to find someone from the town some bisk to accompany his mother on this long and arduous journey there were no trains it all had to be done by or most of it had to be done by stagecoach he couldn't find anyone because they all of shunned the family and from then he loathed that was as a burning outrage to him as anything he subsequently found in marxism or in socialism was he was a very emotional man lenin another thing we don't really think of he wasn't this ice cool calculating machine he was an extremely emotional man he went into rages very often which left him prostrate at times so this is a man shunned scorned and sounds like it's less about ideology and more about revenge at this stage at least is it this quest for revenge that leads him down the ideological path or does he just simply slip into the the shoes the footsteps of his brother i think a little bit more the latter and he was a serious intellect lenin he did go to university he wasn't allowed into any of the two main universities in russia um although in, he would have got first prize in all that you know he was an extraordinarily gifted student so however because it was guilt by association they wouldn't let him into the best universities so they sent him into a second tier university of which then he was thrown out of for happening to be at a demonstration not that he was even involved in it so they picked on him so if there was revenge it was revenge the other way this is what happened in russia in that time but then he went on a massive course of reading and it was that that changed him and, and turned him into a marxist so 
It may very well have been the, the emotional instinct may very well, as you say, be revenge, but that was backed up by serious scholarship and serious work. So is it at this point when he's kicked out of his second grade university, is it then that he's sent into to exile in Europe or does something happen that means he has to be exiled? No, no, he's allowed to do a law course, although not actually be at the university, do it by as an adjunct student. And he became top in the entire country in law and he fitted a three-year law course in 18 months and became top in the whole of Russia. So we're talking about actually quite a seriously clever guy. Then he goes to St. Petersburg and becomes involved in radical politics and politics groups. And that's when he gets arrested. Right, I see. And what is he arrested for at this point in time? By this time, they had formed the Budden Communist Party or a social democratic workers' party. And he was one of the early founding members of that. So... And then there was a strike in the factory in St. Petersburg, and he was writing promotional material for the strikers, and that's when he was arrested. And he was sent to jail for 18 months in St. Petersburg, and then three years exile in Siberia. Okay, so this isn't perhaps the lightest part of Lenin's life, and if anything, you could say that uh, he descends on the road to darkness from this point onwards. Is it from Siberia that he manages to make his escape to Europe? Because I know that he spends quite a lot of time in London. He, absolutely, he didn't escape. A lot of the others did manage to escape. He didn't. I see. He served his sentence, all of it. In fact, he was in a fairly lenient part of Siberia. I mean, for many, many people, that it was like a death sentence, especially for any Jewish socialist. So the other guy who Lenin was very closely involved with him is very much part of the story, Yuli Martov, who was the leader of the Mensheviks. He was sent, as a Jew, he was sent right up into the Arctic wastes and he was treated extremely badly. And his chest, his tuberculosis and other diseases, basically killed him or helped to. But whereas... Lenin and a few others had it quite good in exile. He managed to get married at that time. He was even allowed to a garden could go hunting, his favourite pastime. But he served his term and then went back into underground political and illegal activity. And that's when he left the country. The main thing they had to do, as indeed is, has always been the case with any political movement, is you had to get your message across and they needed to create a newspaper. So it was that, Iskra, the famous Iskra, the first boat which then morphed into Pravda. Lenin edited that with a group of other activists and that had to be done abroad because it was incredibly difficult to do it inside Russia. The secret police, the Okhrana, was quite effective. I see. And so by establishing this newspaper, you can get your radical ideas across, you can recruit new members, and you can start to create a movement. And raise money. <laughs> and raise money. Is this a movement that was mainly consisting of exiled Russians, or was this an international movement? It was, but I mean, a lot of them were already, some of the founders of it were already in exile. The first Russian Marxists I see. were already in exile it was impossible to function inside Russia. So it was mainly Russia. It was Russians. And so these Russians mainly met around pubs in London. I know that Lenin was in and around Islington and, and, and Bloomsbury. I was sat in one the other day. Yeah, he lived in London for two years and published, and Iskra was published right. in London for a while. 
but for a while it was in Munich, and then it got too hot for the German authorities. For a while it was in Swiss, the Swiss, um, various Swiss towns, um, Geneva, Zurich, later Zurich. It was in Paris for a while. It was in the Austrian part of Poland, where he was at the start of the First World War, for example. So basically, Lenin lived nearly half his life in exile, in boarding houses and very modest lodgings in often the dodgiest part of West European towns and cities. Well, you mentioned the First World War. If Lenin's brother's execution was the catalyst to his dream path in life, was it the First World War that gave him the opportunity to implement some of his ideas? Was there such disquite in Russia that he saw it as, well, really being the right time to return? Yes. I mean, he did return once before, after a previous revolution that had happened in Russia in 1905, which was, again, the result of a war, a lost war. The Russians were involved in a war with the Japanese in 1904. And they did very badly, effectively lost. An entire fleet was, a Russian fleet was lost, and they lost land battles. And that too prompted, or was part of a process that um, prompted a revolution inside Russia in 1905, which was then suppressed by the Tsarist autocracy. And Lenin went again back into West European exile, where he found himself in the war. And without the war, there would never have been a revolution in Russia in that way, in the way that it happened. There were, I think that was the main contributing factor. The war which then dragged on and on. And again, a kind of thing we forget about because we, we tend to think that the First World War was the trenches in France and Flanders. But actually, the Eastern Front was ghastly, just as bad as some of those battles were just as awful. And again, the Russians were the biggest losers in manpower in the First World War, as indeed it was in the Second. So it was a very, very large factor of the war. Well, absolutely. And, and where is Lenin at this time? Does he manage to escape all the drafts left, right and centre? Am I right in thinking, is he in Switzerland at this point? Yes, but when the war broke out, he was actually in near Krakow, which was part of Austria-Hungary at that point. And he gets arrested at first for being a Russian. And they suspected him as a spy, so he was in jail in Krakow for a short while. But then the Austrian socialists managed to persuade the Austrian government to let him out because this man is more dangerous to the Russians than our soldiers, is what the argument was. Because Lenin was profoundly against the war, which was, for a while, was a big problem for, for him in terms of propaganda. But in the long run, it benefited him enormously. It was the right call. But in the short term, it caused some problems for him. So then he was allowed out of jail in Austria, Austria-Hungary. It was Galicia, which is now Poland, but it was then part of Austria. And then he was allowed to go back to Switzerland. And he was in Zurich when the first revolution in February 1917 happened. Mm-hmm. 
on Gone Medieval from History Hit, we're here to spoil you with the biggest names. Chinggis Khan, the thing that really galvanised his wars of conquest was his belief that he had been given a mandate to have dominion over the entire planet. We explore new archaeological finds. After the Viking Age, lots of medieval artefacts coming out of the site as well. And delve into the lives of those you might never have heard of. He's not a bad and evil king like King John. I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. From surviving everyday life in the Middle Ages to dynasty-shattering events. Gone Medieval is the place to quench your thirst for history. Subscribe now to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Am I correct in thinking that he manages to smuggle himself into Russia in a locked up train carriage that doesn't stop on the way? Or, or, or am I romanticising this a little? No, well, it was part, that's partly right. It was a deal he came to with the Germans. He, he was desperate in February, March 17. 1917 to get back to Russia because he could see he'd been saying for years there was going to be a revolution in Russia prompted by a war between the imperialist powers as he put it and there he was unable to get there so he reached a secret deal with the Germans who provided him with uh, and some of his people including you know there's other Bolsheviks his wife and his mistress were on the train it's called the sealed train and that's because it didn't stop anywhere through Germany. And it was extraterritorial was the idea that 
So the Germans thought that if they could knock the Russians out of the war, it was a very obvious tactic and utterly legitimate war tactic. If you can knock the Russians out of the war, you only have to fight on one front. So, you know, and if you can then create chaos in Russia, even better, you know, we win. It's easier for us to take bits of Ukraine, all the rest of it, which was which were, were their war aims. So it was a entirely legitimate, and it, and it was sanctioned by the top levels of government in Germany to do this. Who was his mistress, and and what did his wife think of this? Is this an agreement? Is this something? Well, actually, it was one of the few examples that I can think of at the top of my head where all three people in the triangular relationship behaved with some decency. She was an extraordinary woman, Inessa Armour. She was a considerable feminist socialist in her own right. Kind of, she'd been written out of the story of Lenin almost completely because it wouldn't have appeared like the pillar of Bolshevik rectitude if it, you know, had a menage a trois. So, and not only important emotionally, and, but very important politically because she was smart. He could trust her to represent him at international congresses and all that sort of thing, which he never would for a man. Lenin actually quite liked women in a weird sort of way, in a stu- rather stuffy Victorian person in so many ways. But he had no time for anyone much, but just as much time for women as he did for men. And he could take some of them seriously. And his wife has often been written off as a kind of household drudge or some sort of amanuensis. But actually, she was quite a considerable person as well. And she could handle his moods and she handled him very well. When he got into nervous exhaustion because of his rages or whatever and his overwork, his health was quite weak. So he he needed some looking after and some coddling. And she was good at that. And anyway, Inessa, she came from a very, she was married to a really rich, Russian oligarch, textile oligarch, who she left for the oligarch's brother, who was about 10 years younger than her. So she's kind of a woman of the world. This was only Lenin's only romantic interest outside. He wasn't a womanizer generally, but this was a love affair. I think I want to do a podcast purely about her at some point, Victor. We have to get you back on to talk about this. She's great. When I was writing it, I loathed Lenin, but I had a real soft spot for Inessa. And she had five children, none of them by Lenin, because they were all born before she met Lenin. And they met in Paris politically. It was through politics to begin with. And then she became very friendly with Nadia Krupskaya, Lenin's wife. And they became increasingly friendly. It wasn't a threesome relationship in as much as there was no romantic attachment with Nadia and Inessa. But they were extremely close. And when... Inessa, after the revolution, Inessa died first, about four years before Lenin. And the Lenins became guardians of her, of Inessa's two young children, two youngest children. And their letters between Nadia and the children that begin of Nadia's side, my darling daughter. And after Lenin died, on Nadia's desk, there were three pictures, one with her mother, Lenin and Inessa. And it was a very interesting, complex relationship. So this is a kind of human side. That doesn't do anything to the fact that he had millions of people killed and was and created one of the most tyrannical states the world has ever seen. However, to create these monsters and say everything was them, lets everyone else off the hook. 
this is what human beings are capable of, both awful, awful things and just being normal. Just to say a monster quote, I just think it's very, very mistaken for us to just pin the blame just on that one monster and letting all the other millions of his willing executioners to get off the hook and say, oh, it was all his fault. It allows us to absolve us from the blame we have. But it also helps us to understand the complexity of these sorts of figures and how they were able to, to live these, these, I wouldn't say double lives, but how these lives went hand in hand with one another. And actually, they facilitated each other. Like you said, it was those people around him that helped him emotionally yeah. to keep on track to achieve his political agenda. So with that in mind, take us to this political agenda, this monstrous sized, as it may be referred to, and perhaps quite rightly so. How is it that Lenin does seize power? He finally comes to power and the Tsar abdicates. Well, the Tsar's abdicated already. Okay. The Tsar's abdicated, because the revolution that brought Lenin to power was not the one that got rid of the Tsar. The Tsar was already got rid of in eight, nine months before. If we call the Bolshevik revolution in October 1917 basically a takeover of power, a coup, the February revolution, which got rid of the Tsar, was essentially a mutiny of soldiers fed up with the war who wanted the end of the war, that was what brought down the Tsar. And that had already happened. And the Bolsheviks had almost nothing to do with that. That actually was a popular uprising, along with a mutiny of the army, unwilling to fight anymore. So how is it that the Bolsheviks, as a, as a much smaller party, rise up to become the leading party at this point, the ruling party? Well, that it was that that was very much a result of Lenin's political gifts. Although the provisional government, which was established after the February Revolution, helped him considerably because of their extraordinary incompetence, run by Alexander Kerensky, who also is an important figure in this story. But Lenin just banged, banged, banged away. When he got back in, in April from the sealed train and got back, he was written off like a lot of extremists. Written off as so extreme, you're not going to get, you cannot get anywhere. Even a lot of the other far-left socialists, of which there were plenty of others in different groups. Lenin's success is that he was the one who really, really wanted power and was prepared pragmatically to compromise in some respects and to turn ideology on its head 180 degree U-turns when they were useful for the broader cause. He just banged, banged, banged away on three essential points. If there'd been Twitter in 1917, he would have been brilliant at it. It was peace, land, bread. Very simple. Not even 140 characters. And he just went on and on and on. I'm going to bring peace. I will give the land to the peasants. I will feed the hungry. He did make peace with the Germans, and his regime would not have survived two months without that. But not peace in Russia? No. Okay, that makes sense. And then bread-wise, we're talking about famine? Yes. And then land? Oh, no. He had absolutely no intention of giving the land. He had no intention of creating any sort of democratic system or whatever. That was never in any of his... He wanted to create a socialist dictatorship. An international socialist dictatorship as well. Those were very big international plans, weren't there? Yes. 
because the theory went that Russia, being an essentially agrarian economy and also very weak, that without revolutions everywhere else in the world, particularly the developed world, Germany, particularly France, England, Britain, the Russians would be encircled. They couldn't survive without an international revolution. So they believed in it for idealistic terms because Marxism is an internationalist philosophy, but also on practical terms because their regime couldn't survive on its own. And they actually thought that with the end of the war, the revolutions would obviously happen. And then it's kind of became fairly clear that they weren't going to. But they, they, you know, two or three places they did for a very short while. In Germany for a very short while, in southern Germany and Hungary for three months. In Marxist and socialist ideology at the time, this was considered a perfectly orthodox concept. So apart from internal turmoil, political executions and the starvation of, well, the figures range but can go into the millions, what is it that Lenin managed to achieve? Yeah. Is Stalin his legacy? No, Stalin was... Lenin committed lots of crimes. The biggest one was to leave a man like Stalin in pole position to take over from him. Did he want Stalin to be his successor, or was it Trotsky that he preferred to be as the next leader? Well, neither. Neither? Like, lots of, he didn't really want anyone. Uh, well, yeah, of course, yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> like, no, no one was good enough, I mean, the, but he was not the only leader who believes that. But no, he, he did want Stalin at one point, but then very much towards the end of his life, but was already more or less on his deathbed. He wrote this testament to say, you can't have Stalin, he's just going to be a disaster. But by then it was way too late to do anything about it. But he'd always, Lenin, there's this big, it's been an argument on the left for a hundred years. How did it all go wrong? Where did it all go wrong? And that Lenin was this idealist somehow. And, and it was all this, this grey blur, this bureaucrat Stalin that then destroyed it. That's not true. It was Lenin who created all the organs of of repression. It was Lenin who created the idea that in left-wing politics and in socialist politics, the ends can justify the means. It was Lenin who created the law in the Soviet Union under which Stalin liquidated millions of loyal communists, as apart from anyone else, that you mustn't have factions within the party that he killed millions. It was Lenin who created the Cheka, which then morphed into the KGB. Lenin did all of these things. Lenin always understood that you were not going to create the brave new world without using the point of a gun to do it. From day one, and I mean day one, that was so. After the revolution, Lenin hadn't, you know, on the 26th of October, he hadn't slept for two days. He went off for a short nap. And in that time, his deputy then, Karmenev, wrote a decree abolishing capital punishment on the front for soldiers. And then the next one was going to be altogether, everywhere. When Lenin woke up, and this was hours after the revolution, hours after the revolution, he was, Lenin was in an absolute fury and said, what on earth have you done? This is absolutely the wrong message we must send. It is totally ludicrous. And I'm quoting more or less word for word. How do you think we can create this revolution without use of firing squads? That is a direct quote. That was within hours. On day two, he abolished a free press. So he knew what he was doing right from the start. 
Wow. And he goes on to create the system of gulags and sets up the secret police. I mean... Yeah, but hold on. There'd been all that. That was a mirror image of what there already was in Russia. It's not as though Russia under the Tsars was a nice, decent, liberal democracy. Well, you're not wrong. Let's get that straight. And the revisionist historians all say that's what they were going towards. That's nonsense. It was not. And Nicholas II, you know, who did more to create the revolution almost than anyone else apart from Lenin, he was prone to burning down villages with children in the churches. So, you know, let's get it straight that this is a violent place. And I'm not defending it. I'm trying to put it into a context. But the Akrana, under which most of these people have been followed by, arrested by, many of them have been tortured by, all these Bolsheviks, they were simply creating a mirror image of Russia under the Tsars. Lenin was a product of his time and place, which was a violent Russia. And then his cook, Lenin's cook, after he takes over, just as a little factlet that I always rather liked because I found this out, Lenin's cook after the revolution as Putin's grandfather. Lenin's cook is, was Putin's grandfather. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So there's a direct link between the two, which leads us seamlessly, Victor, into my final question. Yeah. There is a, a familial link by the sounds of it there. But in terms of actual political legacies of Lenin, of course, you mentioned secret police and political crackdowns and imprisonment and periods of autocracy in Russia, one that many would argue that we're going through again today. Is there much of Lenin's Russia that we can see in modern Russia? Well, there's lots of pre-Lenin Russia you can see in present-day Russia too. The idea that you need the strong leader, the idea that it goes way deep, deep, deep in the Russian tradition. And I think one of the problems we have is that we kind of buy into it too, is that a land as complicated and as diverse and as huge as Russia needs this Vosj, this strong leader. And in that way, yes, there's a real tradition Putin had a bit of a problem in how we'd dead mark 2000, the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, which to many, many historians would say that is the most important event in modern Russian history. So their way of doing it was hardly to do anything about it at all. Whereas we had big exhibitions here and in France. There were, the BBC had a programme almost every night for about four months. I mean, it was a big deal. And very, a lot of it was very interesting. In Russia, there's hardly anything at all. For the obvious reason that it doesn't do for a kind of autocrat to say, actually, you can get rid of a corrupt, terrible, tyrannical leader if you really want to. But also because ideologically, it's quite hard to explain Lenin. You can't... At one point, they wanted to get rid of the mausoleum. There he still is. And there are still people... There are thousands, there's big, big queues. The last time I went, which was, no, not that long ago, there's still big queues to go and see his ear. It's bizarre in the 21st century to see this. But anyway, there it still is. And at one point, the mausoleum was falling down around where the tomb is. And it would cost 20 million or whatever it was at that time. to. And at one point, Yeltsin wanted to get rid of the Lenin mausoleum, but it sort of didn't live long enough or had other things on his mind, like opening the next bottle. And Putin, at one point, thought, it's about time. But then didn't do it because all these older people said, well, that's telling all these people, a lot of your supporters, that all those years are somehow wasted and all those years, everything that happened was wrong. 
and it's the wrong thing to do. And Lenin, despite ideologically, you know, Putin's hardly a communist, but he believes in strong leadership. And he's used Lenin, who was the ultimately strong leader and still had a Russian empire, kept a Russian empire. So they've managed to use Lenin's legacy, turn this great internationalist somehow into a Russian nationalist through quite clever propaganda. Well, Victor, thank you so much for your time. That was fascinating. You've taken us from this man who had a, a passion for literature and, and riverside walks through to this violent dictator who chillingly authorised the deaths of thousands of people and created a system of terror, or as you say, carried on a long line of terror that had been in Russia for many, many generations. Tell us, Victor, where can people read more about Vladimir Lenin? One obvious place is a book called Lenin, the Dictator, by none other than your correspondent today, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson, and available at all good bookshops and Amazon, if you must. And the first book on Lenin to be written in English in, in 20 years or so. Why do you think yeah. that is? Well, there have been a lot on Stalin, because, I mean, Lenin was only in power four and a half years, really, before he was in, rendered incapable through ill health. Right. But, uh, whereas Stalin was in power for 25 years. So there's a lot more to go on. I can't really explain it. It seemed like the ideological conflict. Once the Cold War was over, it seemed as though that whole idea, the end of history, you know, that the ideological conflict was over and it didn't need one. Whereas, in fact, I benefited from, I mean, there have been one or two very early on, um, written around 1990, 91, when the archives were beginning to open. But I benefited from a whole load more of archives that had been open before, of course, they're ruthlessly shut again more recently. And so there was a lot more information. For example, nearly all the information about Inessa Armour was new only in the last, you know, 15 years or so. I think each generation needs to, these big people in history, each generation has to look at them through a different lens and, you know, they need to be re-examined. Mine will be superseded by another one. That is history, you know. But each generation needs to look again in the circumstances of their day and come up to new insights that's relevant to them. Well, Victor, we're very happy that you did get into the archives to find that information and provide that new light on Lenin that perhaps we haven't seen before. And I share your hope. Hopefully one day the Russian archives will open once again and researchers will be able to analyse this topic. Victor, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.